Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. In the summer of 2019 and 2020, Aotearoa and the rest of the world faced some shocking news. We now consider there is transmission within our communities. If community transmission takes off in New Zealand, the number of cases will double every five days. If that happens unchecked, our health system will be inundated and tens of thousands of New Zealanders will die. In the years since, COVID-19's become part of the backdrop of our day-to-day lives. But many of us can still remember how confronting it was to be faced with a global disaster which seemingly appeared out of nowhere. It was beyond the experience of almost every living person on Earth. But the thing is, there's nothing new about epidemics and pandemics. Disease has shaped human history for thousands of years, including here in New Zealand. It used to be that most people would die from an infectious disease. Actually, they'd have a very good chance of catching a lethal bug before their first birthday. And Aotearoa has a particularly weird history when it comes to epidemics. Ko William Reaho. Ko Mani Welcome to the Aotearoa History Show. Smoke bombs have been thrown onto Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, being an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai. We are marching to Parliament and no more land to be sold. Okay, what's so weird about New Zealand's history of epidemics? Well, first weird thing. For the first 500 years of our history, from around 1290 AD to 1770 AD, there were no epidemics. Māori occasionally got stomach bugs or pneumonia, and sometimes those infections killed people, but there was no mass death from disease. Yeah, meanwhile in medieval Italy, people were writing stuff like this. The condition of the people was pitiable to behold. They sickened by the thousands daily and died unattended and without help. Many died in the open street. Others dying in their houses made it known by the stench of their rotting bodies. Shish, that's pretty grim. Yeah. So why were things so different in Aotearoa than in Europe or Asia? Well, partly because Māori didn't have any farm animals. Usually, the worst epidemics evolve in other species, then jump across to humans. And COVID-19 is a good example. Yeah, as we're recording this in September 2022, scientists think COVID first evolved in bats, then moved on to another kind of animal before finally jumping into a human. Thousands of years in Europe and Asia, people were constantly rubbing shoulders with livestock like cows, pigs and chickens, and also with pests like rats. 
Also, Europe and Asia had heaps of crowded cities where an epidemic could quickly spread to hundreds, sometimes even thousands of people. There was also a lot of long-distance trade and occasionally big invasions and migrations, which carried disease between communities. The most infamous example is the Black Death, which reached pretty much every part of Europe in the 12th century, as well as parts of northern Africa, killing somewhere between 30 and 60% of the local population. Meanwhile, Kainga Māori villages were relatively small and isolated from each other and the wider world. So diseases didn't arrive from overseas and when they started locally, they probably didn't spread far. But in 1769, when Europeans landed in Aotearoa for the first time, they brought a whole bunch of new diseases with them. One of the worst early epidemics was known as Referefa. Historians think this was an outbreak of influenza which happened around 1808. Historian Dr Don Stafford wrote this in his book on the history of Te Arawa in the Rotorua region. Kawaha Point suffered severely, tradition claiming its residents died in such numbers that they were buried where they lay or just left in heaps. Two houses, Raparapa and Mokai Atikoko, were full of people, six to ten in each. They all died and were left where they lay, the houses being abandoned. Refa Refa may have been the worst epidemic Aotearoa had ever seen to this point. Some stories talk about half the community dying. The Ngāti Ruanui poet Tsudo Kawa composed a waiata describing the impact of introduced diseases like a spear from heaven. Toko toko tau ko tahi te tūranga. The spear of wood slays one person at a stroke. The spear from heaven sweeps away food and obliterates people. And Referefa was far from the last epidemic. Missionaries like John Hobbes regularly wrote about the impact of introduced diseases on Māori in the 1820s and 30s. We have of late had a very uncommon degree of sickness amongst the people, and vast numbers of them have died. I have taken the principal charge of giving them medicine, and great has been my distress at witnessing their miseries. Some of the people are taken and dead in a few hours. But at the time, nobody could explain why Europeans in New Zealand were relatively healthy, while enormous numbers of Māori were getting sick and dying. The understanding of bacteria and viruses and of immunity to disease was in its infancy. There were lots of different theories though. Some missionaries suggested God was punishing Māori for failing to convert to Christianity. Some Māori agreed with the missionaries, others thought they'd angered traditional atua, gods or deities, by adopting that new faith. Even in the early 20th century, there was widespread misunderstanding about why the Māori population had fallen so quickly. Some blamed alcohol and tobacco, others blamed warfare. And you know what? We still don't know exactly. But we do have some better ideas. Many scientists and historians think that the waves of disease which had ripped through Asia and Europe over the last thousand years or so had boosted immunity in the wider population whereas Māori and other indigenous communities never had a chance to build up those defences. The other big factors in the higher Māori death toll were land and food. At the same time, the Māori population was reaching its lowest number in the late 19th century, 
Pākehā colonists were thriving. Yeah, between about 1870 and 1940, non-Māori New Zealanders probably had the longest life expectancy anywhere in the world. Partly that's because of what historians call the healthy migrant effect. You're probably not going to sail halfway around the world unless you're relatively young, fit and well, and those who weren't often died on the way. So, colonists were healthier than your average European to start with. Then, once they arrived, they had access to a better diet than your average European. With the boom in sheep and cattle farming, they got a lot more meat and milk. And good nutrition helped fuel their immune systems to fight off infection. But this food, of course, was grown on land which had been owned by Māori. Loss of land through colonisation led to a loss of traditional foods, and also an inability to grow new foods, so less wicker and eels, and little mutton and milk to replace it. Mm. It also meant Māori were forced into environments which damaged health in other ways. Epidemiologists Dr Alistair Woodward and Professor Tony Blakely put it like this in their book, The Healthy Country, A History of Life and Death in New Zealand. There are many reports of crowded and poorly ventilated housing, Water was taken from shallow wells or from streams that were often contaminated by sewage or other wastes. Some typhoid outbreaks were caused by discharge of raw sewage from European settlements into open waterways, which then polluted traditional gathering sites for shellfish and other kaimoana. What's worse, in the late 1800s, thousands of Māori had to attend the native land court to try and hold on to what little customary land remained. If you don't know what the land court is, don't worry, we have another episode all about it. For now, just know that while they were waiting for court hearings, Māori had to spend weeks or even months hanging around colonial towns and cities. And what was so bad about that? Well, here's a poem about Auckland written in 1882. Foul putrescence lieth on each side of the street, and in each festering backyard slops swelter in the heat. The cesspits belch forth gases on fever-laden air, and fever damp uprolleth from sewer gullies there. Death grins twixt each fence paling upon each passerby, and the earthless privy boxes cry out, prepare to die. In many 19th century towns and cities, it was totally normal to throw human waste into the street or into a pit in your backyard. Dangerous bugs from human waste easily contaminated wells, rivers and lakes. Contaminated water was a major cause of death in Aotearoa, especially for young children. One of New Zealand's more deadly cities was Christchurch. In 1870, the city's death rate was twice the national average. If you want to stop epidemics of waterborne disease, the number one thing you need to do is keep poo out of your drinking water. And in the late 19th century, the government stepped up its game on that front. Thank goodness. In 1882, Christchurch became the first city in New Zealand with a proper underground sewage system. Over the next few decades, the government invested huge amounts of cash building sewers and high-pressure water systems. But this was a long process. Ooh, nothing's changed. Even in the 1950s, most communities didn't have access to safe drinking water. And some places in New Zealand still have problems with dodgy drinking water today. Indeed they do. The epidemics of tokotokorangi, the spear of heaven, lasted more than 100 years. Measles, typhoid, whooping cough, influenza, tuberculosis. How many people died from all these diseases? 
Well, we just don't know exactly. Because the problem is that for most New Zealand history, there isn't good nationwide data on the Māori population. Instead, historians have to make estimates based on local surveys, written reports and oral history. Our best estimate is that between the time James Cook arrived in 1769 and the year 1900, the Māori population fell by 50 to 60%, from roughly 100,000 people to less than 50,000. The Musket Wars and the New Zealand Wars account for some of those deaths, but it's likely far more Māori died from disease than were ever killed in combat. But here's a second weird fact about New Zealand's history of epidemics. Māori death tolls from disease were actually relatively low compared to other colonised indigenous people. In Aotearoa, impacts of colonisation like disease and war cut the Māori population in half, which was clearly horrifying and came with all kinds of other damaging cultural impacts. But in other places around the world, the impacts were even more devastating. In the United States, it's thought the Native American population fell by around 90%. In Australia, historians estimate the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations fell between 80 to 95%. You see similar numbers for Indigenous communities all over the Pacific and the Americas. So why didn't that happen in Aotearoa? Well, it's possible it did happen. A few historians think we've underestimated how many Māori were living in Aotearoa before Europeans arrived. And if they're right, then the death toll for disease might have been similar to other Indigenous communities. But if we're sticking with the most widely accepted numbers, there are a few explanations for the lower death toll. (laughs) First, timing. When colonisation happened in other parts of the world, like America, there were a lot of absolutely massive epidemics rolling around Europe. So a lot of people who got on ships to colonise those countries carried the infections with them. But by the time Aotearoa was colonised, those epidemics were mostly over, so there weren't as many sick people on the ships coming here. Aotearoa was a long way from Europe, so if any colonists were sick when they set sail, they usually either died or recovered before they got here. And this meant some of the deadliest diseases, like smallpox and cholera, either never made it to Aotearoa or caused relatively small outbreaks. And at least to start with, there was some collaboration between Pākehā and Māori to improve Māori health. Yeah, like in 1825, a Māori chief, Te Pihi visited England and received a smallpox vaccine. He was the first ever Māori to be vaccinated. By 1854, a national campaign was underway to vaccinate more Māori against smallpox, and Māori were keen to take up the vaccines. Pākehā doctors were appointed as native medical attendants to Māori communities. Pamphlets with advice on health and sanitation written in Te Māori was distributed far and wide. Governor George Grey also built several small hospitals and colonial settlements, which he encouraged Māori to use free of charge. Europeans had to pay for treatment. Although, as we're about to see, there was a catch to this free healthcare. Yeah. Some colonists were actually pretty annoyed about Governor Grey building hospitals for Māori in their settlements. Like, for example, in 1853, the Otago Settlers Association complained that if the hospital be for the natives... It ought to be on one of their reserves and not in Dunedin, where there are no natives, and which is so distant from and inaccessible to their locations. 
But the Otago Settlers Association was missing the point. The idea of Governor Gray's government-funded healthcare wasn't just to treat sickness. It was to pull Māori into contact with Europeans. Told you there was going to be a catch, because there always is. <laughs> and some colonial leaders, like Governor Gray, hoped British-style healthcare would encourage Māori to assimilate into British society. But Māori were often very wary of hospitals, and that was a fair call. 19th century hospitals were dangerous, unhygienic places. Until the 1870s, surgeons didn't even wash their hands. And in the middle of all this, in the 1860s, the New Zealand Wars happened, and a lot of those early healthcare efforts were interrupted. By the 1890s, there was a new generation of leaders taking on the challenge of Māori health, especially a group called the Young Māori Party. The Young Māori Party were a bunch of Māori men who'd graduated from the Anglican Mission School, Te Aote College in Hawke's Bay. Many of these guys went on to become lawyers, historians, politicians and doctors. They wanted to bridge the gap between Māori and Pākehā, encouraging both the adoption of new knowledge and the preservation of aspects of Māori culture. For example, the Ngāti Mutunga leaders, Māui Pōmare and Te Rangihirua, also known as Peter Buck, travelled around Māori communities in the early 1900s, encouraging people to improve sanitation, dig new drains, improve ventilation and set up latrines, basically old-fashioned outside toilets or long drops. And when a Komatua complained to Te Rangihirua that latrines were a Pākehā invention with no role in the Māori world, he didn't dismiss those concerns. No, instead he quoted old Purako, Fakatoki, Fakatoaki stories and sayings which referred to latrines way back in the past. There's one famous one, Ngawete Paihamutsi, which loosely translated means something like bite the toilet seat. It's sort of like the Māori version of bite the bullet or grin and bear it, because it's not like Māori were running around pulling everywhere and they didn't have their own systems in place. We just had more condensed areas and different ways of doing things with bigger populations. People like Te Rangihiroa were combining new knowledge of medicine but explaining it in a way that made sense in a Māori context and that turned out to be highly effective. Especially in the wake of the New Zealand wars when many Māori were understandably sceptical of anything linked to the Pākehā world. Māori nurses like Akinehi Hei of Te Whakatohia also learned to blend European medicine with Mātauranga Māori, which is traditional Māori knowledge. In 1909, Akinehi travelled to a gum digging camp at the Kao in Northland to treat a typhoid epidemic among local Māori. She took a hardline approach, scolding patients who refused to accept new styles of medical treatment, and the community turned on her and refused to listen, although that technique can sometimes work. But Akinehi Hei learned a lesson from this. She wrote in her journal that... Great discretion must be used not to offend the patient's beliefs and at the same time uphold one's own mission. Later, when Akinehi was treating another outbreak in Hiruharama, Jerusalem, on the banks of the Whanganui River, she changed tactics, encouraging the community to work with her rather than ordering people around. And it worked. Fano worked with her to dig drains, move homes to higher ground and isolate sick people. And around 1890, thanks to a combination of increasing immunity, improved sanitation and better access to food, the national Māori population started recovering. But outbreaks of infectious disease still killed a lot of people. Akinehe was one. 
She died from a typhoid infection while treating an outbreak of the disease among her family in Gisborne in 1910. She was just 32 years old. Pākehā authorities often praised people like Ākenehihei and Te Rangihiroa, but they didn't treat Māori healthcare as a priority. Efforts to create independent Māori health councils collapsed. There was limited funding to improve infrastructure in Māori communities or to train Māori nurses and doctors. The first systematic tuberculosis survey among Māori was in 1933 in Maiapu on the east coast. One in every 20 Māori had the disease and the death rate was 10 times higher than for non-Māori. And Māori weren't the only ones to suffer unequal burdens from disease. Chinese, Indian and other non-British migrants were often unfairly stigmatised as carriers of infectious disease, sometimes with tragic results. In 1903, Kim Lee, a Chinese fruit seller in Wellington, was suspected of having leprosy. He was quarantined alone in a cave on Mokopuna Island in the middle of Whanganuiatara, Wellington Harbour. Food was delivered by a rowboat or a flying fox from nearby Matsu, Soames Island. It's now thought Kim Lee probably didn't have leprosy at all. It was most likely a more common disease like tuberculosis. He spent six months alone on Mokopuna Island before he died there of heart, liver and kidney failure. New Zealand's most deadly pandemic was the 1918 influenza pandemic, commonly called Spanish flu. It probably started on a pig farm in the United States, then made its way into the trenches of Europe in the final year of the First World War. The only reason it's called Spanish flu is because Spain is the first place where its outbreak wasn't suppressed by wartime censors. It's rapidly spread around the rest of the world as soldiers returned home and is estimated to have killed at least 50 million people. That's double the death toll of the First World War itself. People sometimes compare the 1918 pandemic to COVID-19, but there were some big differences. The 1918 pandemic mostly killed young, healthy people, and its deadliest wave spread across the world in a matter of months before mysteriously vanishing. In Aotearoa, some efforts were made at local lockdowns. But those lockdowns weren't strict enough to prevent the virus spreading, and they weren't centrally organised, so each region came up with their own rules. What's worse, many communities organised public celebrations marking the end of the First World War. Those celebrations turned into super-spreader events. There was no paid sick leave in 1918, so many people either risked catching the disease at work or went hungry, like 19-year-old Janet Fenton, who lived in Mount Eden. Janet got some shifts at the ammunition works, but she also had to steal from the greengrocer to feed herself and the family she was living with. She wrote, One by one, all of us came down with the flu. I was the last. I was sitting on the front porch waiting for the doctor to come. Next thing I knew, he was carrying me to bed. It's your turn now, he said. Well, I said, who's going to steal for us now? We were skin and bone when it was over. 
In many places, communities banded together. Food was delivered to the houses of sick people by volunteers, including children and the Boy Scouts and church groups. Doctors and nurses caught the disease themselves, and ordinary people had to fill their place. Buddha Scott started off washing dishes at Masterton Hospital. Three days later, she was second in command of nursing. She wrote, We did our best, goodness knows, but we knew so little. I think the worst ordeal was when some husband or wife would ask me to find out about his or her spouse, and I'd lie when I knew he or she had died. Outside the Pākehā-dominated towns and cities, kāinga Māori were hit even harder. The 1918 flu killed 49 out of every 1,000 Māori, compared to just 6.5 out of every 1,000 Pākehā. Pākehā volunteers often organised relief missions to their Māori neighbours, but the more remote kāinga had no outside support. In some small communities, everyone got sick. No one was healthy enough to feed and care for the most vulnerable. The famous Te Rarawa activist, Dame Fina Cooper, lived in Pangaru on the Hokianga Harbour. She was pregnant when the flu hit. She later said this about the experience. I was the only one that came through out of all the ones that were pregnant. They all died. And also the babies they died. Everyone was sick, no one to help. They were dying, one after the other. My father was very, very sick then. He was the first one to die. I I couldn't do anything for him. There was a, a feeling that aroha, love, is... Nothing. Your feeling for your relative, it wasn't there. Like my own father. When I knew he was dead, I don't think I even cried. Fina Cooper, just like many others, was in shock. Nationwide, at least 9,000 people had died in just two months. But New Zealand's worst legacy from the 1918 pandemic was in Samoa. New Zealand soldiers captured Western Samoa from Germany early in the First World War. Military administrators failed to maintain a quarantine, then doubled down on that failure by failing to support sick Samoans. It's estimated 8,500 people died, more than 20% of the entire Samoan population at the time. Many of them are buried in a mass grave right in the centre of Apia. We'll talk more about this incident in another episode of the Aotearoa History Show. One thing did come out of the 1918 flu pandemic, a major review of New Zealand's healthcare system. There was heavy criticism for the government's lack of preparedness. One doctor, David Lloyd Clay, who had experienced treating flu outbreaks overseas, described the health department as helpless and wholly unprepared. Clay and other critics focused on the failure of quarantines, which could have stopped the disease reaching Aotearoa in the first place, or at least preventing it from spreading so quickly. In response, the health system was completely overhauled. In fact, many of the laws used to combat COVID-19 were first written in the wake of the 1918 flu. 
For example, the health minister was given the power to close down public events and private businesses and to requisition food and medicine for patients. Voluntary organisations like the Red Cross and St John Ambulance were bolstered with government funding. But historians such as Geoffrey Rice say the most significant change was the establishment of the Division of Māori Hygiene under the leadership of Te Rangihiroa, one of those Te Ote graduates we mentioned earlier. The division was chronically underfunded, but it made significant improvements to the health of Māori communities, effectively scaling up the Young Māori Party's health care policies. It sent Māori nurses and doctors into kāinga and gave advice on reducing the risks of infection. In 1924, Te Rangihirua presented a report which said, The tokotokorangi that the ancient poet Turokawa lamented over no longer makes thrusts that go unparried. Sanitation has made great advances, water supplies are protected and modern systems installed. In the following few decades, the death toll from infectious disease plummeted for all New Zealanders, but especially for Māori. Mostly, that was thanks to the efforts of the Division of Māori Hygiene, what a name, but also thanks to new medical treatments. Some of the biggest killers, like tuberculosis and typhoid, became easily treated with antibiotics. There have still been other outbreaks of disease, like through much of the 20th century there were regular epidemics of polio. The disease caused paralysis, especially among children. Schools were regularly shut down to prevent the spread of polio. But increasingly, medical technology has come to our rescue. Vaccines all but eliminated the threat of polio and have dramatically reduced the impact of measles, mumps, rubella, meningitis and influenza. And as we're speaking now in 2022, COVID-19 vaccines have dramatically reduced the death toll we might otherwise have suffered from the virus. But there are still major inequalities in New Zealand healthcare. Yeah, just to give one example, Māori and Pacifica children are far more likely to suffer respiratory infections due to damp, overcrowded housing. Sometimes those infections turn into rheumatic fever and cause lifelong disability. These sorts of inequalities and inequities have a long history in Aotearoa since colonisation. And for all the progress we've made, there is still a long way to go. Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War Series, or Black Sheep, or Eyewitness. You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcasts. The Aotearoa History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benge, William Saunders and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Houliston and Matai Smith.
And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.